And all the people said, I was just getting over uh, Jan's uh, contribution, and then they come up with that one. It's good to be in the Lord's house today. Let me start off with a little bit of a team meeting. None of y'all have watched any football lately, have you? <laughs> so let me uh, work on that uh, premise. I'll be writing an article. I know you can't wait to receive it. But the punchline will go something like this. Um, it's good to see you here, but we need to get back to our routine and maybe then some. Uh, we need to gather up. We need to be present. Uh, we need to be supportive. We need to be attending. Our search committee has real live people in front of it. They're talking to real live plausible uh, prospects for serving you as pastor, and we need to be in this season of sort of, uh, well, huddling up, right, getting together, being here, being supportive, and uh, looking after one another, and so let me just ask you to have a certain resolve about being here and participating in the weeks ahead. I think it's very important that we show our determination and our resolve and our faith in what God is doing in our midst and um, encourage our prospective pastor and encourage one another. And let me just ask you, thank you for being here this morning, but ask you to make it a priority to be present and to be encouraging uh, in our midst. It is good it is good to be with you. Now, pardon me for the sort of corny title, uh, but the truth is, this little movie, Home Alone, just almost didn't get made. They uh, cut its budget, and the director stood the line, and for about a million dollars, a little over, they closed down the project. But I am told, with some uh, probably skirting of the rules, another movie theater heard the price tag, liked the project, just happened to find a script left on a counter, you know, that kind of thing, and bought it up and made it, I think, if not, my, not mistaken, when it hit its peak, it was the third most popular movie ever. I can't go through Christmas without seeing some of it. I'm supposing maybe you've seen some of it. It's the story of this little boy who is left behind by his affluent family. And he's there at home, fending it off, protecting it, and somehow doing all that in the Christmas spirit. What a movie. I'm puzzled by these left-behind stories. I've collected through the years people who've been left behind in churches. Our story today from Scripture is Jesus getting left behind, his community entourage probably traveling in a band with his community and nearby communities of probably several hundred people. They go back in mass to sort of protect themselves from mischief and robbers along the way. 
somewhere along the way, about a day into the trip, they realize, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? <laughs> Jesus is not with them. So they make the story of the trip back to Jerusalem. So they're out a day, they travel a day, and then the third day is when they catch up with Jesus. They're in Jerusalem. They find him in the temple precincts in an informal conversation with teachers of the law. It's one of our few stories we have about Jesus. Now we have this remarkable story about Jesus, uh, this remarkable claim about Jesus, that he really is somehow mysteriously God come to engage and experience our experience. He's entered into our uh, circumstance and he becomes one of us. One old ancient church father put it this way. It's as if though you let the piece of iron set over the scrap, uh, over the fire. And in time, that would become so hot it would be impossible to touch the iron and not touch the heat. And he sort of compared that to Jesus. You never saw anywhere along the way that Jesus wasn't both human and divine. You couldn't touch one without touching the other. It, it's kind of a beautiful, simple sim summary of what Christians have come to believe, this remarkable, uh, mind-boggling sort of profession that's at the heart of who we are. And yet, our story makes the point of saying Jesus grew up. He, he grew up. Wow. How real can you get? He even had this experience of being left behind. So, I won't ask for a show of hands, but if you are psychically scarred from having your parents let, leave you in church somewhere some, along the way, and run off and discover you missing and come back and find you at church, then don't worry, you're in good behavior. Jesus got left like that as well. By the way, I won't take you through the long story I've collected, uh, but I've run into a lot of people through the years who've been left in church. I think maybe it goes back to kind of a generation when you had kids with you late at night on a Sunday evening, and so in time you let them spread out on the pew, right, and take a nap, and then they get to napping, and afterwards you start talking, and then, well, you know how that can happen, but oh well. Uh, by the way, uh, I think the most prestigious person I met was a, a rather accomplished lady on her own front, but she was a college, university uh, president's daughter. Not my president, by the way. Although you wouldn't blame him because he has seven kids, right? He, he could easily miss one temporarily, I would imagine. <laughs> but um, uh, she got left behind at church. And um, mom thought dad had her. Dad thought mom had her. And, well, these sort of things happen. And this very real life thing happens to Jesus. But in the ordinariness of Jesus' life of really growing up, and having things like this happen, we see even in those occasions, there's something remarkable about him. And this is the occasion as well, at the end of Luke chapter 2, we read this beautiful, simple story about Jesus in the temple and his parents finding him there. Would you follow along as I read 
We'll start in verse 41. Now every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, he went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended, they started to return. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they were startled, uh, started to look for him among the relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and at his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I, I think she's calling in the authority, right? Your father and I, we've been searching for you with great anxiety. And he said to them, Why are you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Notice the subtle, maybe not so subtle. Your father and I. Jesus' response, my father's house. But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And notice the summary, very important. Jesus grew up, 52. He increased in wisdom, years, and in divine and human favor. Now this beautiful story holds a a sort of a window into maybe a little bit about Jesus' own sense of being special, but no, no doubt it shows the sense that he was remarkable and special by others who observed him. The circumstance would have been not any official meeting of the Sanhedrin or anything like that during this festival or near it, but instead it would be the opportunity for privileged teachers to take a spot and hold court. Laypersons could kind of come and get in on the action, have a conversation Sort of like ask a Bible scholar, I suppose, if you had a decent Bible scholar around to ask, right? Um, And uh, you would get answers and then questions and give and take and so on. And Jesus was in such a circle. But it wasn't just the amazing thing to see a young man his age just kind of religiously coming of age. There, it's more the depth of the exchange that was taking place. Uh, We don't know if there's an official bar mitzvah service, right? Uh, A bar mitzvah today at at, at that age would suggest that this person is becoming a son of the law and in effect standing on 
his own two feet, uh, now taking a responsibility for obeying God and being directly sort of accountable to God, no longer sort of mediated and buffered by the relationship to his parents. We don't know if that's an official ceremony yet going on, but we get the point. Jesus was entering into young adulthood in his own day. But as a very young adult, just at the place where you might have started an apprenticeship or something like that, he already seems to have a profound grasp and interest in things. And he asks questions. Now let me just put the professor's hat on for just a moment. There are times when you've been teaching something for a long, long time. You think you know this backwards and forwards. There's so many texts to read now, you hardly ever get to this place, but there's a few little bits and pieces, and you know there's only so many texts to read, and you've read them all. You think you have a fairly good grasp of informed opinion on a matter, and then you'll get a question. And it will just strike you. I've been working on this for a long, long time, and I've never thought of it like that. Profound, seeing something new, something interesting, something remarkable. And so these folks who were the teachers were impressed by the questions. And that provoked questions on their part and answers. And Luke uses this special word that he uses along the way when he thinks people are moved by the Holy Spirit to do remarkable things and everybody notices. They're astonished. You see that again. Uh, you see it when the Spirit's poured out in chapter 2 of Luke, uh, Acts. You see it uh, when the Gentiles uh, first get the Spirit in chapter 10. You, you see it again again. There's a couple of places in Jesus' life where it's punctuated. And, and again, it, it's just this remarkable thing that's seen. And then everybody says, wow, what, 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 what was that? I mean, that? That was something special. And they're thinking this about their encounter with Jesus. And that's what the parents walk up and see and to some degree interrupt. Now her scolding of Jesus is somewhat mild, but he gets the point. Young man, you've left us to worry. We've been anxious. Jesus' answer, um, we're told later he's obedient, it's slightly uh, terse, uh, and yet at the same time, it says something maybe that anticipates a good bit of what Jesus will go on to teach about and what his life will be about. I'm in my father's house. This is what, where I belong in a, a sense, Right? inquiring about this and learning about this is, is who I will be about. 
they don't quite understand this, but she files it away with so many mysteries, and it says that she pondered them. And then this remarkable summary, Jesus grows, he grows up. There's so many things here. I'll, I'll just land on maybe one of them. At the heart of Jesus' teaching is his determined usage of the word Father. He speaks of God as his Father. He speaks of God in this relational term it's one of the things that kind of awaken us to the prospect of him being something very different and, and much, much more than just an ordinary person. His bond with the Father seems to be unique and individual, a status that uh, betrays just a simple uh, a prophet or a simple obedient person, a solidarity there that's, uh, the, that's intimate and personal. And already we see it forming here. He's not just a son of the law. He's somehow specially and experientially a son of God. And God is his father. And he relates to him differently. And the Christian idea is this wonderful Jesus, this distinct and true son he shares the work with his father, this solidarity and in, 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 in this connection he has with the father. He invites his followers to share and enter into that experience. And so in the simplest of things, all through Jesus' teaching, you see this father image is important. Even when he tells his disciples to pray. He says, you speak to God like a father. I'm not just a son of the law. I'm not just a person who's accountable. I don't relate to God as someone who's able to follow instructions. There's not this kind of matter of uh, me being someone who's acclimated or learning how to act or being socialized or learning the system or learning how to fit in. I, I'm not just some sort of person who's learning the ropes. I'm somehow, I'm meeting the Father. Wow, that's different. And Jesus invites you and I into this same sort of experience. I don't want you to know about God. I don't want you to know God is some third party. I want you to understand that God wants to be your father in this very special, intimate sense. And so at the beginning of Jesus' story, this sort of big piece, this mountain already appears above the surface of the water just as a little bit of a peak, right, like an iceberg. But already it's here I'm not just someone.
who's going to know this God in a third-party sort of sense. This is my father's house. No disrespect, I think, mean to Joseph, but his adopted human father, but this is my father's house. It's somehow very personal. Knowing is a tricky word. It's almost always in any language one of the trickier words. Uh, It's very intimate and relational in the Hebrew language. That survives and is present in the Greek language as well, captured maybe by some Greek expression. It survives in English in the myriad of ways that we use the word know. When I ask you, do you know someone, there's a lot of different ways we could go at this. If we pictured a famous president, we might say, who knows that president? I'm reading a couple of biographies on uh, founding fathers these days, and I'm always interested about how much they know. And I've read a little bit uh, in uh, my youth, at least, uh, on some contemporary biographers and the volumes and volumes of things written about LBJ, for example, I suppose if you wanted to say who knows more about this person than anyone else, it would be one of these biographers. They have details and material that are just mind-boggling. They knew when the person went from a size 42 suit to a size 44 suit. They know more about a person than perhaps anybody ought to know. They know and have looked at almost every piece of paper that's collected about the person and for a contemporary present, that's quite a bit of paper. They, they just seem to have an, an investment in a knowledge of detail about a person. And yet, you know what? You could kind of almost embarrass them if you ask just a simple question with another nuance of the word no. But did you know him? Did you know him? What do we mean there? Did you, did you ever meet him, Right? And I remember seeing a, a famous biographer ask just that question, and he had to answer, no. It was even more interesting than that. He says, actually, he walked by me. I was four feet away, but I never met him, right? <laughs> he walked down the street, and I was four feet away, but I never met him. That's different than how maybe a son knows, right? You can know about a person. You can have maybe met a person. As tricky as this sounds, though, knowledge is, especially in Hebrew, it's relational. It's experiential. It's not just about data collected on a person. Hold on. Don't give up. We're almost there. In other words, there's a sense in which knowledge is reciprocal. When you use the word knowledge, you you really, it's possible to convey that this relationship is in place. So, for example, 
I haven't met Matthew McConaughey, but uh, I'll just uh, mention him as a star. I could say uh, I met Matthew McConaughey. Let's imagine that he was at some event, and I went through as one of many people in a line, and I shook his hand and so on, and I might spout off someday that I know Matthew McConaughey. Well, I pick him because the lady who worked for our department for so many years, a wonderful <coughs> person, called our executive assistant. She was really the one adult among the many children she had to look after in our department. Uh, but she was uh, up to the job and ran a great department and so on, a very competent person. But if you just spouted off about Matthew McConaughey in front of her, she knew Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey had babysat her children when her and her husband went out on dates. They were close friends across the fence in Sugarland, Texas. So close that in time, they built a turnstile on that fence so the kids could get back and forth easily. And when Matthew McConaughey would show up in Sugarland to have dinner with his mom, very often this family would be invited to join them. Now, let's say I spouted off and said, oh, yeah, I have met, or I know Matthew McConaughey. And then my assistant were to say, well, that's very interesting. I'm having dinner with him. You might imagine I'm kind of going to need to scramble to clarify something, right? I might explain, well, I just met him among many people. I was one of... Uh, uh, two dozen people that went through and just shook his hand. Uh, he, I, he, he barely heard my name. What, what's the point, though? The point is, I, I sort of, I met him, but I don't really know him. And the bigger point is what? He doesn't know me. You get it? Knowledge is this experiential thing. And even here at the beginning of this very ordinary story about the most extraordinary thing of this special one come from God, God's own presence in our midst, this one who grew up, but even in this ordinary story, Jesus isn't just doing something ordinarily. The whole thing is sort of extraordinary. He's not going to be just a son of the law. He's going to personally engage this God as his father. And he invites you to do the very same. And somehow when we come to meet him and trust him, we begin on this journey and uh, we begin this uh, uh, kind of route to, to trust him and to, and to entrust ourselves to this process and to discover that this one is not some far and distant and oblique sort of Reality or mystery, as mysterious as God is, this one has made himself known to us through the Son who is sent in our midst. And Jesus says, don't be surprised to find me where I belong, in my Father's house. The home alone kind of works corny, I'm sorry, but because Jesus was left behind, but in time you found where Jesus' really home is. 
and you find that he's anything but alone. The whole point is he knows God in this intimate way and he invites his followers to learn to know God the same way, to entrust ourselves to a life where God is our Father and every good image Not that we always have the right image as a father, but every good image of father is something that we can love to trust and know that that's the way God relates to us. This is someone who loves you and has the most profound interest in you and has this great vision and hope and design and and longing for you to come into your fullness and and, in your flourishing This is someone who loves you. And I don't know we're in a place where we can really believe God would love us that way, but by the Spirit of God, I can just say, keep hanging out with this Jesus, and it's kind of contagious. And in time, you learn to trust that God really is like this toward you. He's a loving father. And where you belong is with him, enjoying his presence. Don't be satisfied to be at arm's length. Learn and love and trust the God of all this world, and cling to him as your heavenly father. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, I pray, would you call us this day to be awakened from a spectator sort of place, a, a place where we look and ponder and, and sort of try to fit in and try to find our way Awaken us instead to this privilege and this great blessing that Jesus extends to all of his followers. Lord, let us know you as a father who we can trust and a father who's provided for us, a father who's looked after us, a father who who longs and woos and, and pulls us toward him. And God, I just pray... Would you awaken in us this year and even, Lord, in this very moment an experience with you that is not sort of arm's length but is life-giving and life-changing. And, Lord, woo us to know you more profoundly and love you more truly. And, Lord, I pray that we might know experientially, know you as Father. Lord, we speak these words simply as part of our liturgy and routine, but Lord, I pray that they would come alive and we would know you. Heavenly Father, we pray this prayer in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.